I am sitting here with Dylan Mendelson. He is a very good friend of mine. Well, I've known you since 2016, and we did our personal training school together. Yes, we did the Diploma of Fitness, and it was a, uh, I don't think it was a Diploma of Nutrition, maybe a Cert 3, Cert 3, yeah? Uh, no, it was a Diploma of Fitness, yeah. It was a Diploma, diploma of Fitness, sorry, yeah. and the Nutrition course that went with it, I think that was maybe Cert 3. Yeah, yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah. Dude, before we start, I gotta say, you're looking freaking massive, dude. And I actually feel like I look small at the moment. You know, you get body body dysmorphia where, so because I'm not my biggest, I've been twelve kilos heavier than this. So in my head, I'm small. But I just finished the comp recently, so, well, six weeks ago. So I feel like I'm a little kind of big, but small. It's really confusing. Body dysmorphia can be really um, <clears throat> mentally draining at times. Would you say you have body dysmorphia? I know that's meant to be a um, mental disorder. I'm very in tune with that sort of thing. So it's not a bad case of body dysmorphia, but yes, I've lost a little bit of detail since comp, so I think I'm fat. But um, at the same time, because I'm not at my biggest, I think that I'm skinny. It's, it, we, we call it fat skinny. <laughs> What's your body weight right now? I'm sitting on exactly 100.5 kilos, and I'm maintaining that on 4,000 calories. And you're saying that's skinny. I know it's a lot bigger than where I started. My starting point was 56 kilos, so 100 is actually quite decent. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get in your own head about these sort of things. As long as you've got control of it and don't let it bother you, it's all right. Now, you say you started at 56 kilos. I'd like to go all the way back to pre-Monster Dylan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you want to take it back to childhood, my mother used to say to me a lot, look at you, you scrawny little thing. You need to put some meat on them bones. So in my head, it was always embedded that I'm scrawny and that I was always going to be skinny. And I always had this thing with, I didn't know what a bodybuilder was at the time. In my head, I used to just call them muscle men. I thought, you know, fuck, I wish I could be a muscle man. That'd be so cool. But it's just, that's, that's not for me. <clears throat> anyway... As life went on, like I, I hit the gym but by the time I was, I think I was 17 or 18, did a little bit of training with my dad and stuff. And I blew up quite quickly, but I I was influenced, oh, let's say I, I have a weakness for for women at times. And um, I, I met the wrong woman and she was into some pretty heavy drugs, which I stayed away from for quite a while. But then she would like, you know, she'd go off with other blokes and she'd say, oh, I'm just, I'm just I'm just using, you know, and I, I didn't know anything about the drugs that she was using or anything like that. But in the end, I cracked the shits sort of, and because she kept saying to me, if you just use it with me, then I wouldn't go off all the time. So I ended up just using it with her. I thought, oh, fuck it, what's one time? <coughs> anyway, I did the one time. One time led to two times, because once you've done it once, you think, well, I've done it already. What's the difference if I do it again? I kept using and using. And so my, my normal body weight was 63 kilos as a fully grown adult, well, fully grown almost. I was 21 years old by this point in time. And, um, you know, 63 kilos. Ended up using the drugs for like two, two or three months with her. And then I was like, fuck, what am I doing? This isn't me. I don't want to do this. So I stopped. Um, for the, for the, day, the day that I stopped, I felt like shit. And I spoke to her and I said, oh, look, I'm a bit sick, you know, because by this point in time, we we're living together as well. I'd move into her parents' house with her. And yeah, she, she said, oh, you're hooked. I said, what's hooked? She goes, you feel like shit because you're hooked. I said, what, what is hooked? She goes, you're addicted. 
I said, no, I'm not addicted. I can beat that mentally, you know? And she goes, no, it's heroin. You're, you're hooked. Your, your body's physically dependent on the opiate now. And I was like, well, what the fuck does that even mean, you know? So I, look, I looked into it a bit further and I was like, fuck, why didn't you tell me that this was going to happen? And she goes, well, I thought everyone knew because she was so into that lifestyle. She just naturally thought that everybody knows already that you're going to get hooked if you use too much. So, yeah, I found myself um, <laughs> physically addicted to heroin. And so that went on for a while and she was she kept using, she was kind of supporting my habit. I was working as well, so I'd chip in a little bit of money. But in the end, you know, it really takes a toll on you. So I couldn't continue working. And as a, as a child, I was, um, I was very sheltered from everything. And I actually, it, it turns out that I found out, you know, over the past, I think five or about the past five years, I had ADHD. So I was always very into um, taking chances and risk and all that sort of thing. And um, yeah, I guess that's why I, I started trying the heroin anyway. And as I was saying, I was very sheltered. And I used to see these drug dealers, but like I couldn't, I couldn't even watch M movies as a child. Uh, as a child, I mean, like before the age of fifteen. So once a time, once it got to the point where I could watch them movies, I'm seeing drug dealers and money and women and all this cool stuff, and I thought, fuck all. If why don't they just sell the drugs and have all this stuff and then not get killed or not? go to jail or whatever. I thought that'd be a great way of doing it. So when I was with this with this chick and I couldn't work anymore because I was just too physically taxed from the drug use, I, uh, I just started selling a little bit of drugs myself. And uh, which led to me, I ended up, I was, I was selling meth. At, I started off selling the smaller stuff like um, just speed. And then um, I kind of moved up because that wasn't selling so well anymore. There was meth, meth became a thing and that was around more and that was the in thing to use, so to speak. And uh, so I started using that. No, actually I started selling that, sorry. And it was hard, like business really picked up with that business because I'm very driven when I'm, when I'm into business anyway. So I made it work. And uh, yeah, I just, I couldn't stay awake to go see all my customers in the end. And yeah, so I thought I'll just have I'll, I'll, someone said to me, I'll just you know use use the meth, the ice, just have a try. And I said I don't really want to use it, but if it's going to keep me awake to go make this money, then so be it. So I tried that, and um, yeah, it really pepped me up. And then I, I I was I was really alert and focused, and my brain was just ticking really fast. Turns out that um, the, the medications that I'm on now for the ADHD is actually an amphetamine as well. It's a very weak amphetamine, like five milligrams of dexamphetamine. It's nothing, but it's it's in the same type family. So it turns out the the ice was basically medicating me, making me think even better. I was able to. I don't want to make ice sound like a positive thing at all because it's not. It fucking destroyed a lot of things as well. But um, yeah, I was able to think and create my business to to go better and just kind of. Uh, make things work. So that became somewhat addictive to me too. So then I found myself, I was hooked on heroin and ice. And then I was selling. And so I had these two habits now that I had to also, you know, I was kind of getting high on my own supply while I was making money. But money, making the money was always the priority. <clears throat> so I did find myself at times like not being able to use what I had to sell, which was quite painful at the time. And um, yeah, that went on for nine years. 
like I actually built a good business out of it, but then you you become on the, on the police radar. Obviously, obviously it's illegal and things are going to fuck up at some point. So that's when the movies started making sense because I kept getting raided by the police and uh, you know I'd end up in the police cells and getting um, interviewed. I always managed to get out because I'd, I'd get out on bail, waiting for court. And then I'd uh, adjourn my court cases just to prolong everything. And in the end, like it just happened over and over again so much that it all accumulated to, um, it was gonna look like a jail sentence. So I tried to not go to prison. And yeah, uh, by the age of 27, I'd gotten my current girlfriend pregnant and we were having a baby. That's my, my youngest, uh, my other son, Deja. And uh, yeah, I really wanted to clean up for him. So the court was giving me extra chances, saying, all right, if you go to rehab and do, uh, if you do a detox and go into rehab and you get all that done, then you know there's a good chance that you might stay out with some, you know, uh, community work and obviously some. I'm not going to go get off scot free because I've done the wrong thing. Like it's a, it's a pretty fucked up scene actually. I've seen some really bad things in it. I don't. I wouldn't advise anyone to take that route because it's a real it's a really dark world and it's it's funny because it it still happens to this day. There's just this dark world that's there and nobody sees it. Uh, except for the police, of course, or anyone that's slightly involved. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, so my son was being born, and I come from a good family, so I thought, you know, I need to do the right thing. Like, I've had a good influence like that. I felt sorry for, for my parents through this whole time when I was on the drugs too because I didn't see much of them, and every time they seen me, I was more and more kind of decayed, so to speak. Like, I looked like death almost by the, by the end of it. My face had sunken in, my eyes were sunken in, my cheeks were really, my face was gaunt. I was pretty fucked up actually, but I still always had in the back of my mind, I wish I could be one of them muscle men, you know, but I just can't do it, it's just not me. Anyway, time went on, I tried the rehab, I tried the um, detoxes and everything. I did get through one detox and then they put me in a rehab, Odyssey House, and it really just, I don't, like, looking back on this stuff, I can... I can say that my jail sentence was better than doing the time in Odyssey House, the way they wanted to do things in there. It was a very, uh, Odyssey House was a really dog-eat-dog, uh, uh, what's it called? Not detox, um, rehab rehab centre. And yeah, I'll just good on the people who do go there and they can kind of stick to that system, but the system wasn't for me. It was very, um, you know, you've got to dob on this person for that or dob on this person for this to climb up the ladder, and then eventually you get up the ladder and you have a bit more power. Basically, you're doing that by dobbing people in. Like, I didn't feel good about that. I left 24 hours later. I was, well, less than 24 hours later, I was in the main office saying, let me go. I want to get out of here. I thought in my head already, look, I'd rather be in prison doing this than, than you know, I've always had a problem with authority figures as well, which I think guess goes with the ADHD thing too. So um, <coughs> I just wanted to get out of there. I thought, fuck it, I'll just do the prison time. And that's what ended up happening. So eventually all my court cases came around together and I was very lucky. I think I did four years worth of prison in 13 months just because of the way the system is. I ran everything concurrent. I had a good lawyer. I used to run, run everything concurrent and I did my time inside for 13 months. And I had some really good supports in there, believe it or not. There's some really good people in there. Um, yeah, I, I'm still good friends with one of them to this day and he helps me with my my legit business with um, fitness and the coaching and all that. So yeah, he, uh, 
I'll stay in contact with him. He's helped me big time. I've met some good people in there that have I've bought out here. Like I've come out here to the to living a normal life. For, like I had to clean up for my son and this certain individual that I was I'm talking about, Charlie. He uh, he he was in my ear every day saying he, he called me Johnson because. My last name's Mendelssohn, and he, we have when in prison you have, you get given towels and it has your last name on it. And he quickly just looked at my towel and he goes, "What's your name, bro?" Uh, Johnson. How's it going, Johnson? <laughs> he was a funny little guy. He's a little Vietnamese guy, and he sounds like the biggest Aussie yubbo because he's he's done a fair bit of time. Like he's I think he's done a brick all up, which is ten years in and out. Like he was he's just a he was a naughty guy. But then he came out and he had family as well and now he's managed to stay out. He started up the business and everything and he's been like a mentor to me now too. Like watching him grow and be able to succeed in business also pushed me to want to grow and succeed in business. And yeah, he was in my ear all the time saying, What what are you gonna do when you get out? And I'd say, I'll just keep dealing and I'll do it smarter. And he'd roll his eyes and be like, Bro, I've been in the system that long. Like I see it's a revolving door. I see people say that all the time and they just they're in and out in and out thinking they're doing it smarter but you're always on the radar it never gets any better and it's a dead-end road like yeah you might get you might get out and make like a million you might make a million dollars but then you're going to get locked up and it's all going to go it's going to go on lawyers it's going to go on the time that you're spending tied like money getting put in there it's just it's a big waste of time it's you can't it's it's near impossible to get away with once you're on the radar or at all for that matter, if you're going to be successful at it. Anyway, yeah, he was always in my ear and he said, bro, no, why don't you think of something legit you, you can do and then um, get out, look after your son and do that. And I said, well, actually, yeah, you've got a good point. I, I should do that because his mother doesn't seem to be going in the right direction with things. So uh, two weeks into my prison sentence, his mother had actually dropped him off to my mother's place. And my mum's so good. She looked after him throughout my whole sentence. She brought him in every weekend to see me, even though it was like a two and a half, three hour drive to the prison. She still come in every weekend just so me and him could make a bond. We built a good bond while I was in there. And then by the time I got out, like we were, we were close because I'd seen him so much. The prison even let me have a birthday party for him in there and everything because I was like, 13 months sounds like a long time, but you know, we've all we've all been in lockdown now, so we know what a year feels like being locked up. And time actually flies if you're in routine. It just it just goes by like, you know, you're in routine, you're doing the same thing every day. 13 months is actually jack shit. It's like to, to get off the drugs that I was on, the heroin and the ice, it was a perfect amount of time to clean up. Like the first few months that I was in there, things were really rough. I barely remember it. And I, was, I had people coming up to me, talking to me like they knew me, and I thought, oh, you do. And I didn't, I'd met them, but I just couldn't remember because my memory was so clouded and foggy, like it was rough. I was in pain, my legs were aching, guts were churning all the time. I was just sweating, but I was freezing. Like, yeah, it's, it's really, it's rough getting off that stuff. I, I would never recommend anyone even try it just because it's that dangerous and that life-threatening. But yeah, anyway, so I did my prison sentence. Charlie helped me a lot in there. With the, he was my cellmate because... Um, well, we'd both been sold up with um, just dickheads that we didn't like. So, we, you know, you could talk to the screws in there and say, is it all right if we sell up? And they're always pretty happy with that because they don't want trouble happening in there. So if people are getting along, they're, they're kind of happy to put them together. And then, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time in prison together. He helped me a lot, got my head in the right the right um, psychological headspace to come out and do the right thing. And um, yeah, I came out and that's, so actually I came out two weeks after I came out, 
because all my friends were Asian. I'm actually half Asian myself. I'm half Indonesian, half Aussie. And I just, I was used to growing up with Asians and then like I kind of had a whole group of friends that were Asian. And yeah, I went out when I was on parole two weeks after I had gotten out of prison. And when you're in prison, you become very defensive because that's just the way you've got to be. You've got to stand up for yourself. Otherwise people are going to walk all over you. And I was at an Asian nightclub with some Asian girlfriends and one of my half Asian guy friends as well. And um, yeah, I think that the Asians that were in there, they, they didn't like the fact that there was, because I look like a typical white boy, you know, I, th I don't think they liked the fact that there was a white boy dancing with one of one of their women who was quite attractive. And so, so one of them, there was a whole group of them come up in front of me and started dancing, like taking the piss out of me basically. And because I was so like on edge or defensive, I just pushed him across the dance floor. I was like, get the fuck away from me. What are you doing? And all of his mates run up and grab me and they're, they're like, oh, just leave it, just leave it. You know, he's all right. Nothing's going to happen. I was like, all right, cool. So I, le I left it, went back to the bar. I shouldn't have been drinking because I was on parole, but I thought I'll have a few, you know, but I had absolutely no tolerance because I just spent that much time in prison. You have no tolerance to anything because you haven't had anything. I had a few more shots and I can't remember anything, but yeah, I got bashed really bad. There was, there was a whole group of them that followed me out of the club. I ended up seeing it on Crime Stoppers, like down the track. They all followed me out of the club and then they, um, they, they got me from behind, knocked me out. My head was on a step. They just kept jumping on my head like it was, like it was a trampoline. Yeah, that really fucked me up. So I got a brain hemorrhage from that. Apparently it happened to some other guy in the city that night as well and he died. So I, I count myself pretty lucky that I survived through it. But mum took me home straight away because she's very protective. She should have left me in the, pot, in the hospital because I was home for like two weeks just acting like a... You know, my brain was dead. Like, I, I was acting like I, I couldn't control myself. I was flicking soup all over the walls. I was swearing. I was out of control. And, um, yeah, so she thought I'd better take him back into hospital. And they ended up finding out a hemorrhage. Uh, finding a hemorrhage. Like, my brain was bleeding. And that took about eight months of recovery just to become normal again. Like, I'd try and walk through a doorway. And my I couldn't judge anything. I'd go to walk through a normal doorway. And I'd bump into it. Like, my shoulder would hit it or whatever. Or I'd be playing with my son at a, at a McDonald's playground and I'd smash my head into something because I just couldn't judge anything. Like, my judgment was gone. But Charlie actually got out of prison and we, we went to go out for dinner. And I jumped in the car. I said, I'll drive because I thought I was fine. And I drove out into the middle of the highway thinking that I was at the giveaway sign. And he's like, bro, bro, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for the cars. And he goes, you're in the middle of the fucking road. I said, no, nah, I'm fine. Yeah, my, my judgment was just that far off that um, I ended up smashing the car, not badly. I smashed up someone's ass, and that's when he jumped out. And he, he said, bro, just get out. I'm going to drive. And that's when we figured something was wrong. So mum took me back into hospital, and that's when they MRI'd me and found the brain hemorrhage. Yeah, recovery from that. There was a lot of psych work and stuff because I thought that everyone was trying to kill me. So I was stuck at home. I actually got into a really depressive state where I became suicidal. And, the, and like I thought, you know, do I just go stick a knife in the toaster and see what it does type thing because I didn't give a fuck. Like I was just that depressed and miserable. And uh, the thing that always stopped me was the fact that I had my son and I thought, fuck, you know, my son's, my son needs a good chance in life and I've come out and I want to do the right thing. So I've got to, I've got to give him a chance. Like my mum would never give up on me. She didn't. Like even when I turned my back and didn't see them for years, as soon as I was in, in prison, she was the one who was there. None of my friends were there because they really weren't friends. Everyone was just around, you know, using me for a puff or whatever. It was just 
what you know whatever they could t- take take advantage of me for they would and they'll all pretend to be your friends that's just the way that evil drug industry drug scene thing works um, but yeah family was always there so I thought fuck I've got to be there for my son you know so obviously I didn't end up doing anything bad I didn't do anything any type of self-harm or anything I'll just you know, sit sit at home every day then I'd go I'd wait till I have a psych appointment he kind of got me in the right uh, mind frame about things it took a while for me to actually get out back into public so first he, he gave me some exercises to do which the first one was just go outside you know go outside have a smoke if you want to have a smoke just go outside for a minute next day you know go outside walk to the end of the footpath or the end of your driveway sorry and then walk back day after that walk to the end of your driveway have a look down the footpath, walk to the first corner of the footpath, walk back. So there was exercises like that until I got myself around the whole block. And that actually started, um, you know, re- releasing some serotonin and endorphins and all that sort of thing, which I wasn't aware of at the time. And I'm not even sure if that's why he got me to do it. I think he was just trying to get me back out into the open so I feel a little bit more confident. But, you know, hormones come into play, obviously, when you become active. And, um, yeah, after after being able to do a few laps around the block, I, I then thought, fuck, I, you know, when I was inside, my main thing that I did every day that I enjoyed was train. Like, I started training in there, and I went from I went from that 56 kilos up to, I came out at 76 kilos. So I put on 20 kilos, and I thought, fuck, this is great. I'm massive at 76 kilos. I thought I was a giant. <laughs> now that I think back to it, I think, fuck, if I dropped to 76 now, now I'd be so depressed. <laughs> but anyway... Um, yeah, what was that? Yeah, so I ended up getting back into the gym. Started once you get into the gym, like it, it really helps with any type of mental health, anything, anything psychological. It helps with you know activity. Just just moving even helps. But yeah, gym gym is a really big help to everything. So I could say that you know training basically saved my life too. And uh, yeah, then I, I trained and I trained and I started to get. You know, I started to put on a bit of size and that's when I thought, you know, I should do this for a living. And then I looked into the sage, that there was sage at the time, it's a person, that's where I met you. Um, yeah, so I looked into sage and I thought that looks like a pretty good one. So I signed up for the fitness diploma, fitness and nutrition diploma with a micro business course attached to it. And yeah, that's where I met you and that's where I learned, you know, to... That's why, sorry, I should say I started to learn. Like I learned the basics. From that diploma, you learn the basics of fitness and the way nutrition works, um, you know, physiology, a little bit of biology type stuff you learn in there. Not a whole lot, but enough. Like if you're switched on, you can do something with that. And um, yeah, because I just thought, fuck, I really want to be a trainer. Just, I can't, I can't sell drugs anymore. It's a big no-no. I don't want to go around in circles because it's obvious that the, it's obvious to me now that that's what's going to happen and I'm going to look out for my son. Like his mum's really not around a whole lot. His mum's a good person. His, his mum's a great person. She just doesn't have a lot of um, willpower, so to speak, when it comes to, um, you know, trying to, trying to guide herself down the right path. Yeah, and uh, it's sad, but, but yeah, hopefully one day she comes around but she was also she was also kind of born into that lifestyle too, which a lot of people are, and it's hard for them people to ever get out because that's you know they grow up and that's all they know. Which I was different. I grew up in a good family. I didn't know that, but I was just so damn curious because well, now that I look back at it, ADHD had me you know curious about everything, and I was happy to take risks and happy to kind of do the wrong thing. I think, and then yeah, 
kept training. I, I, I did I did that course with you. It was great doing the course with you too. There were some really good people in there. There was you, MJ, Jem. I still speak to Jem a little bit to this day. I was speaking to Brad for a while. Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a few good cats in there. Anyway, um, so I got my certificate in that. And I really wanted to be a, uh, a trainer. So yeah, I, I, and I kept training myself and I started getting big. I'm not going to say that I did everything naturally because that would be a lie. Uh, and uh, a lot of people were saying to me, when's your comp, when's your comp? And I would say, well, what comp? What are you talking about? They said, well, you look like a seasoned competitor. Do you have a comp coming up? And I'd say, no. And then I, eventually, because I heard that so much, I thought maybe I should do a comp. Maybe that would be good for business. And I actually, I've got an uncle. He's, he does um, basically uh, like a life coaching type thing. And he helps, he helps like businesses grow and he helps a lot of um individuals grow and like uh, do goal setting and all that sort of stuff which I do a lot of myself now too with my clients and um, <clears throat> yeah so I think went for about six months I would see him see him weekly and make a plan I'd done the, um, the fitness diploma so my plan was to do one bodybuilding comp and I thought that was going to get my name out there and that I'd be, you know, the bee's knees. I could just get, get any client and just run a business off that. Turns out it wasn't that easy. I've now done, I think it's nine comps. And, um, yeah, only only over the past year since lockdown ended, I've been able to really get my business up and up and running properly. I had some really good mentors too. Dean McKillop was great. He um, He's my the last coach that I had. And, yeah, he, taught, he basically taught me how to do online coaching and a good way to structure things and he really um really upped my knowledge with when it comes to nutrition flexible dieting um macro accounting type things you know structuring programming uh everything yeah he's he's a grouse coach dean is hats off to him and um i've actually i've actually tried to advance my knowledge even more now uh i've gone to i've, I've done some consultations with dean's mentor as well Roderick Chavez, he's unreal. He's, he's great when it comes to biology, physiology, and especially pharmacology. Like, he's known as the drug guy. So <laughs> he, he's basically taught me how to do all that sort of stuff at a really safe level that's not going to cause long-term life issues, really. Like, I, I wouldn't say safe to the point where drugs is okay because there's always going to be dam damage from something some way, you know? But the way that I look at it is and I hope I'm not being a bad influence by saying this, is if, if, I, want to, if I want to do something seriously, then I'm willing to take that, that small risk with good guidance to do it because, you know, jumping in my car, driving here, for example, that's probably a bigger risk because someone could smash into my car and take me out at any second and then everything's all over. Why, why, why should I tiptoe around life and be so cautious when, yeah, I could, I could do things to the force and I'm pretty extreme like, with anything I want to do, I'm pretty extreme, and that I think comes back to ADHD too, which I should speak a little bit about on in regards to uh, mental health awareness, because I I would have never had any idea, but I was training I was training a client now who was like my he's my best mate um, Nathan, so I was training him, and he was he had seen me go through some shit with a part with an ex partner of mine, and he seen that I was really struggling, and he identified some things some um, uh, things that that pretty much told him, because he has ADHD as well. And um, yeah, he identified things that would be an ADHD diagnostic uh, within me. And in the, in the end, like I was that depressed and messed up from this 
uh, partner that I was with, like things just weren't going well and I didn't handle it well. And he could see why. He goes, he, you know, just try a medication if you want. And I, I, at that point in time, I really just wanted everything to stop hurting, you know. So I, I tried it and it actually helped a lot. I, I could focus my thoughts better. Because with ADHD, you know, you have these neurons in your brain and everything that kind of spark to each other, like like a car with a um, like a car with the spark plug to the, the spark plug to the leads and all that. Like they spark, and when they stop sparking properly, the car runs like shit. So basically, my brain was running like shit because it wasn't sparking properly. So I ended up getting um, therapy. I went to Nathan's therapist, Irina Gregorian. She's an amazing therapist. Um, yeah, I would never go anywhere else because she's she's just the best. She, it's like she's God sent or something. And then she later she later after working with her for about a year, she referred me to a psych, Doctor Reddy, um, and he diagnosed me with ADHD. So I ended up getting medicated. A lot of people are like, "Oh, don't get medicated. It's useless. It's all in your mind." But that's actually not true. Like there there is a science and there is actual things that happen within your brain that that make you different to other people like it's not sparking it's not firing properly if i if you can find a way to make it spark and fire properly then why not take that route that way you can focus better which makes for a better life total outcome you know so yeah i got medicated for the adhd and since then i've been able to structure my life so much better routine is better uh, my business has really picked up I'm, I'm able to you know i'm able to run my business fluidly and compete at the same time like I said I've done nine comps now and I don't like to blow wind up my own ass but I think that I've done reasonably well with my competitions I haven't not placed in any so I'm happy with that um I've taken a few first or one one of the nationals for the under 90s that that felt great that was it was such a good feeling and my therapist helps me with when, I, when I'm down with things she kind of helps me she goes put yourself in a place where you know, something where you felt really good. And I always take myself back to that place where I won the Nationals in the under 90s. And, um, and yeah, it just puts me in a good place. So if ever I'm struggling with anything, I try and put myself back there. And I hope this is helping anyone who's listening because you can do the same type of thing. Just put yourself in a place that felt good. Just take yourself back to that place. Try and remember how it felt and then try and project that into whatever situation you're in when you're not feeling the greatest. Yeah. That's it's a lot to unpack, and um, I feel really good that you would share that with me and the listeners. Um, it makes a hundred percent sense that you would have some sort of drug addiction and be ADHD at the same time, because ADHD is a dopaminergic and norepinephrine uh, disease. So the people who are usually diagnosed with this disease usually reach out for things that are going to fulfill that dopamine and norepinephrine system. Yes, exactly. Uh, these individuals are usually highly reliant on alcohol use, uh, drug use. Uh, they can also be overweight because that fast food fills that dopaminergic system. Uh, but I did have an individual on my podcast recently, Dr. James Keane, who specializes in youth mental health and ADHD specifically. Um, we spoke about something called uh, Bacopa Maniri. It's a, uh, it's a plant, basically. And they did, uh, I don't think it was a longitudinal study, but it was a big study. And it showed that, look, it does take roughly about three months to be as effective as something known as modafinil. I don't know if you've heard of modafinil before. I'm actually trying to get my hands on it now. Yeah. <laughs> 
it basically takes about three months to be as effective as modafinil. But bucapamineri has no such side effects as the, um, as you'd call it, stimulant medications. Um, exercise is also really good for ADHD yes. because it decreases that hyperactive. I'm not type, I'm not sure what type of ADHD you have, whether you're hyperactive, impulsive. I'm not. And I, I would say I'm impulsive. I was impulsive, but everything's under control now after therapy, after the medication, and especially after a certain ex-girlfriend that I had where I would get impulsive all the time because she would razz me up all the time. And I kind of just I learned to calm myself through these situations because my therapist would give me steps to take, you know, and they really helped. Like, I, And then in the end, I could just calm myself. So now I could be put into a heated situation and just know how to stay calm. Yeah, and I, I, I'm continually, continuously doing research on different psychologies and different different um, steps you can take with things and things that I can put through to other people to help them type thing. What medication are you on at the moment for ADHD? I'm on one called Vivance and um, that, that's a slow release. Basically, so I'm on dexamphetamines, which is the five milligram one. It's, it's only, it only has a half life of four hours. And uh, I find that the, the Vivance is the slow release version of the amphetamine, it's much better for me because it's supposed to be a 10 hour release, but I feel like it's about a six to eight hour release. So I'll take that in the morning and then um, I'll, I'll stop. <coughs> I'll stop with the Vivance and just swap to Dexies. So I think I have two Dexies a day and one Vivance. I'm, I'm prescribed more than that because generally with people with ADHD, I think they prescribed about six Dexies a day. When you were in prison, um... You don't have to answer this question, but I just find it uh, interesting because a lot they do say that a lot of prisoners could be undiagnosed ADHD individuals because ADHD is also associated with conduct disorder, so um, quick to aggression type of deal. So if or, uh, that could also be associated with ODD. So um, uh, uh, something defined disorder. Uh, it's basically defined against authority basically i think whatever that is i might have that as well yeah that's why i have not succeeded in keeping a stable job working under somebody else for too long so i just don't like authority so i, I needed to start my own business my question was how did you go dealing with i don't know if you were quick to aggression before medicated um but how did you go dealing with adhd within prison uh, look, I was because I was coming off so much drugs. I was very dulled, very. Um, I was finding myself again. Like I didn't know who I was anymore without drugs. So uh, I think when you, when you're in prison, if you're if you're a piece of shit out here, that's going to follow you in prison, and you'll do a you'll do a uh, rough sentence. Basically, I never really. Although I was dealing drugs, which is probably old class, almost as a piece of shit, you know. But uh, I, I never did anything bad to anybody. I never ripped anyone off. I never ju I never put cutters in, into my stuff trying to make more money. Like I didn't I didn't, I didn't sell people shit stuff. Like I was always trying to do the better right thing, even though it was such a bad thing to do. I still kind of kept some kind of morale about it. And because I, I wasn't robbing people, I wasn't hurting people, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. Nothing really bad followed me inside. Like there was one situation where. Someone tried to be a hero because one of my friends had picked up his girlfriend while he was inside, so he wanted to be a hero and blame it on me. And uh, they got me in the cell, and he, he 
they, uh, he was trying to be a hero. He punched me in the side of the face, and he wasn't—he wasn't a very strong fella. And I, I turned around and I said, "Did you just fucking hit me?" He—he he, he, he was wrapped with himself. He was like—he was fucking bouncing around. He's like, "Yeah, I've been wanting to do that a long time." I said, "You fucking serious? What, what the fuck for?" He goes, "Because—because I won't mention her name." Because of my girlfriend, you know? I said, yeah, but that wasn't even me. That was one of my mates. And I had told him strictly. I said, don't fucking go there. She's got a bloke who's in prison. Don't do it. Don't be a piece of shit. And he did it anyway. I won't mention anyone's names. <laughs> anyway, my, my friend my friend Charlie, that I mentioned before, like he, he is a nutcase. And he's he's known for stabbing people. So <laughs> for over the over the most minute shit as well. Just you don't fuck with him because you get stabbed, basically. And then I think the guy who was basically protecting this, this guy who hit me, who was quite a big fella. He was like 120 kilos, and I was, I was 70 at that time, I think. So I was, I was tiny. I was stuck in the cell thinking, fuck, what do I do? How do I get out of this situation? I was lucky someone came in to borrow some coffee, so when they came and opened the door, I could quickly, you know, jump out and go back to my cell, and I did. And I think the big fella who was in there all of a sudden must have thought, oh, shit, Dylan's good friends with Charlie, and... If, if Charlie finds out about this, some, some really bad shit's going to go down. So he's come over to my cell and he's like, oh, don't mention to anyone what happened, you know, we'll just keep it under the rug, sweep it under the rug. I said, I said, look, my head's just gone swelled up a little. I had a little egg on the side of my head. I said, what do you think Charlie's going to think when, when he um, comes back and sees this? You think she's, he's just going to say, I'm just going to tell him, oh, I fell down the stairs and he's going to believe me? No, it's not fucking happening. He's going to lose his shit and something's going to be done about it. That's just the way that he is and that things are in here. He goes, oh, well, what, what can we do? And I said, how about you send your little mate over here? I'll jazz him up a little bit, and then we'll fucking send him back over. And I'll say, I'll handle it myself, Charlie. Don't, don't, don't have to worry about it. And that's exactly what happened. He sent his mate in to get bashed. And <laughs> so, yes, some mate he was. So he sent his mate in, uh, uh, you know, gave him a little bit. He ended up having a swan, big swollen eye, broken crooked nose and he had to hide it under his hat for days so the screws wouldn't see it and then there was more problems that followed that because he was he was actually asian the guy that like hit me and i hit him and uh so the asians always get involved and protect each other lucky i had charlie charlie was asian too because when they came up to have a word have words and do whatever to me charlie jumped in he said no nah, hang on a second that was shit like he was sitting on a chair he wasn't even looking they hit him from behind all he's done all johnson's done is defend himself and um Yes, yeah, so, so so that happened. It wasn't an impulsive situation at all. I think, look, in regards to impulsive, I think my whole sentence I was probably that like trying that that dulled down and trying to figure out who I was basically. That there was no room to be impulsive really, and I didn't because I wasn't a piece of shit out here. There was no trouble following me around apart from what I just spoken about. So. I was never in a bad situation and somehow I just managed to find the right friends to hang around with too. Like there was three of us that used to walk around all day together every day. One of them was Charlie. Another one was um, Nathan. Turns out he had done a murder out here and he had done a murder in prison. So people inside really don't want to fuck with someone who's been killing people in there. <laughs> it's kind of a no-go zone. So yeah, like we'll just all hang out and chill. Nathan was actually a really good guy too. Like, he helped me a lot to to see, like, you know, when you get out, you're going to come back in if you start doing bad shit again. It's just the way it is. So listening to those two really helped me a lot. Um, in, yeah, so in regards to impulsive behaviour, I don't think I've ever... Like, inside, I don't think I've ever 
had to um, control any impulse of any sort. Just because there was no trouble coming my way, really. Yeah. What would you say was the hardest thing about being in prison? Uh, you had a son by then? Yeah. Um, would you say having a son on the outside while you're on the inside was probably the hardest thing you had to deal with? I knew my son was in good hands because he was with my mother. Like after two weeks of me being inside, he was already with my mother. And I know that like she, she's good. He's in great hands, so I just need to focus on myself. The hardest thing was probably trying to think of something that I can do when I came out to not go back in to protect my son and stay out, you know what I mean? To raise him properly and be a good father figure to him, which I believe that I have been, like I've done a good, I think I've done a pretty decent job of being a father figure. But um, yeah, in regards to me being inside and him being out here, it was hard, yes. And it was always hard saying goodbye to him after the visits all the time. Like I just wanted to be with him all the, t- uh, um, yeah, all the time. And then when I came out, like we were, we were, just, we were close already. It was great. Like I could spend so much time with him. And then, uh, like, yeah, when I got the brain injury, I had to spend so much time at home anyway. I couldn't drive. I couldn't go out. I was, you know, like I said, I was depressed. So I spent a lot of time with him, just watching movies, bonding with him. Like, it was was kind of good, in a way, that I couldn't go anywhere because I got to spend so much time with him. So, yeah, it wasn't too hard that I was inside and he, he, he was out there because I knew within myself that everything that was happening was happening for a good reason. In, with an outcome that would be me being able to look after him better and raise him properly. Coming out of prison, you had a drive to do something else, but you weren't sure what it is you wanted to do. You said you found that within prison, but did you jump from prison straight into personal training or was there a stage where when you came out of prison, you still weren't sure what it is you wanted to do? Look, there was definitely that stage as soon as I got out, but because I got my ass kicked and got that brain injury so soon after coming out, like I thought, I'll finish my parole and then I'll worry about it, which was two years of parole, I think. Maybe a year and a half? I can't remember. But um, yeah, because I got my ass kicked and had the brain hemorrhage and everything, all I had to do, I didn't have to do any community work or anything like that. My mum would just drive me to my parole uh, meetings and they just ticked me off that I was that I was there and I wasn't breaching parole. So there, was, <laughs> there wasn't much time to worry about um, figuring out what I wanted to do between that time and having the brain injury really put a hold on things. But as I recovered and became you know, better at things, I, I thought, well, fuck, I, I want to do this fitness thing, so how about I get off my ass and do something about it? Yeah, so I, I did. And that's yeah, when I started the course with Sage met you and yeah, now here we are <laughs> you've come out of prison and you've become a pretty successful coach and father i might say um i will say actually so people who have been within the prison system or people who have had a bit of a rougher upbringing not really had the circumstances gone their way i think you could be a pretty good example of you can come out of that system and do something better um, would you have any advice for people who have gone through the system, had a rougher childhood, sort of tried to figure out where they fit within life? Look, first off, I would just say stop acting like a piece of shit. Just You're probably an adult by this point in time, so figure something out. We're all given a brain, use it. That's probably a little bit too blunt, though. 
So basically, you know, I've, I've, um, I've also done a diploma now in um, mental health and drug and alcohol counselling. So I would like to further take my coaching thing and put it together with that some mental health guidance stuff, like some counselling, maybe even. And I wouldn't mind getting my head into some prisons if I can, just to speak to these guys and give them some directional advice. Like, And so I guess what I would want to tell them is the question that you just asked, what, what would I tell them? Is find something you're passionate about and follow that. No matter what you have to do, just follow it because... I've been out of prison now for nine years, I think it is, and only just recently have I finally got traction with with my company, my business, and um, getting it up and rolling, become like getting it into a successful type spot. And it's taken that long; like it's not going to happen overnight. You really got to fucking work hard at these things, otherwise they kind of just slip through your fingers. The tough thing about drugs is most people. The statistic is most. I, I think it's around ninety percent of users say they always go back. Um, have you ever heard of psychedelics? Yeah. So I haven't haven't done them that much. Like I did mess around a bit when I was probably fourteen. Probably shouldn't have said that. Mum didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sure she won't watch this. <laughs> Just don't show it to her. Ah, I don't care what she knows anyway. Um, but oh, you mentioned something before about. You know, 80% of the prison is probably undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, I think 80% of the community is undiagnosed ADHD, to be honest with you. I'm not sure on the statistic if it's 80%. Um, I've just heard that a high amount of prisoners could be undiagnosed ADHD just because of their... ODD and CD uh, that goes along with being ADHD. It, um, ADHD has also been known to correlate with anxiety and depression. Um, I think what prison systems really need to do is put forward a stronger mental health uh, institution rather than just throwing them in a cage. It's not, they don't really just throw us in a cage. There is um, counselling and psychs and stuff that you can see in there. Like, they do have a good handle on all that sort of stuff. But whether or not the prisoner or the individual is going to take it seriously is completely up to them. And I'd say nine times out of ten, they're really not going to take it that seriously. Going back to psychedelics, the reason I bring it up is um, psychedelics has been shown to really help with addiction and getting over drugs. Uh, specifically things like alcohol, um, uh, methamphetamine use so you have drugs like i shouldn't say drugs I'll, even though they are drugs psilocybin is one um mdma is another these type of psychedelics have been shown to help counteract addiction use to the okay but just sorry to interrupt but on that note if you're going to use these to stop the addictions do you continue to use these because it stopped the addiction and become addicted to these now they're not addictive substances Okay, but what about the person's, the individual's addictive behaviour? So they've done research. I'm not sure if it's in the United States. It could be the United States. But even people with addictive personalities, because it's kind of like, how would I put it? Let's just say a natural herb, for example. If we come back to Bacopa Maneri, right? Now... Pacipa is just a plant. Now, now you hear this and you say, okay, 
this is probably not addictive, I'll take it. But these plants are just like that. They don't have addictive compounds. They don't act on the dopaminergic and norepinephrine part of the brain. What they actually do is they act on the prefrontal cortex part of your brain, which is your logical thinking. And they act, and because it kind of switches this, this part of your brain off, it makes the other parts of your brain communicate, which helps give you a better understanding of, quote-unquote, where you sit. Okay, that's quite interesting because um, I think a lot of these addictive drugs aren't, aren't so much the drug that's addictive. I think it's more the individual. Like, yeah, I get, I get it that heroin was physically addic addictive. Like, my body was reliant on that. And ice, meth, was, um, that was addictive because, you know, it peps you up and then it's a feeling that you just chase and you want more. Uh, I'm not too familiar with um, cannabis. I've never used it too much myself. I've used it here and there. I don't know if that's addictive or not, but it seems like when people are using it, they're getting pretty fucking addicted to it because they don't stop. Um, yeah, but these psychedelics that you're talking about, I wouldn't mind looking further into them because it sounds quite interesting. And personally, my thoughts on things is addiction become uh, addiction comes from an, an individual's behaviour. And I, I personally don't feel that somebody can ever completely beat addiction because it's within their behaviour. And um, yeah, so what I do is... Basically, oh, for example, I stopped. I stopped with the addiction with ice and heroin, and even cigarettes because they're they're a bad addiction. But there's also things that can be a good addiction, like gym, for example. Going to the gym that's a great addiction, and that kind of that kind of fulfills my addictive side of my personality. I go to the gym, keep going to the gym. Only problem is if I start missing the gym, I start getting withdrawals basically like mentally i don't cope too well if i miss too much gym and i start thinking fuck what, what's going on i need it i need it i need to get back in there so um yeah it's it's interesting that you can say that you're, tell, you're telling me about these drugs that aren't addictive i'd like to know the st statistics on how, how many people have actually completely crushed addiction due to using these psychedelics so so far the addiction rate put it in your words crushing addiction from using these things like psilocybin and mdma um i'm not sure if i'm pretty sure lsd is also another one that they've used to counteract uh, addiction is 100 percent. okay mdma just sounds like a really good time to me MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> so mdma is a non uh visual hallucinant uh, psychedelic. Um, before I go any further, I would like to say I'm not pushing the use of psychedelics. I'm just trying to get out information. And to me, it's really strange that we have these type of uh, substances that we can use to help uh, individuals who have addiction or even depression and anxiety, but yet they're illegal. There is there a stage, What is, I think it's a stage... Uh, stage one stage one i'm not too sure uh drug so that means they are highly illegal i'm pretty sure even possession of these type of substances is two years in prison but in australia yeah no that's within australia yeah, yeah. two two, uh, two other years countries, in i'm sure that would be legal uh 
I know in Samoa, they're complete, uh, psilocybin is completely legal. Yeah. Um, I'm not telling people to go to Samoa and just... <laughs> <laughs> but if you want some <laughs> and you don't want to get yourself in trouble, yeah. you should go. But yeah, again, I'm not telling people to try these substances. I'm just trying to put information out there that there are other alternatives that you can look into. Um, because a lot of people who go to psychotherapy to get off drugs... Most of them end up going back. Um, it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate circumstance, but it, it happens. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people don't even realize that caffeine is highly addictive. I know there's uh, one person who I work with. Um, he can't go a day without having caffeine, otherwise he gets headaches. He, okay. well, he, I don't see that as such a bad thing. I think because I've been on the, you know, the worst end of the spectrum of of drug use, I would see, I would say, so you know. Because as a, as a counsellor, what we get taught is to, you know, wean people off things. So if you could wean someone off a hardcore stimulant and get them down to caffeine, I think that'd be a great outcome. Hundred percent. If you're on a hard stimulant such as cocaine and you're trying to come off cocaine, and then your next step is coffee, hundred percent. That's a, that's a really good step. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's anything you really need to take away from your life ever. No. Um, so I won't. Uh, mention this individual's name but i do know someone who's so addicted to coffee that they have six cups of coffee six cups of coffee a day and caffeine i don't know if um people who are listening to this understand the neurological effect of caffeine but what it specifically does is it it blocks your adenosine receptors so adenosine is a chemical that your brain releases and eventually floods your brain to help you go to sleep and the only way to get rid of it is sleep so once you've had your eight hours of sleep you wean out that adenosine so you can basically quit daily yeah so but, <laughs> but the problem with caffeine is because so too much of an optimist no, no, no that's all right <laughs> that's yeah well yeah maybe i need to be more of one <laughs> but the problem with caffeine is this individual that I know of uh, has so much coffee in their system that when they do go to sleep, they're only getting three to four hours sleep a night, okay? And they're not even getting the full depth of sleep, that deep sleep, because the caffeine, yeah, that caffeine is still keeping them somewhat awake. And this individual also smokes cigarettes, which is something else that's addictive. Yeah, look, I think the nicotine would be a whole lot worse than the caffeine. It is. Um... They're, also, they're both stimulants as well. Yeah, they're both stimulants. And this individual that smokes... Now, cigarettes are something else that don't let you reach that deep sleep realm. Um, now, this individual has severe sleep insomnia because of all... Just because of cigarettes and caffeine. Yet, cigarettes you can buy off the shelf. Is that factual that the cigarettes are going to stop you from hitting your REM sleep? Yeah. Because... Yeah, I've I've um I've noticed when I when I was a smoker, I was sleeping pretty damn deep. And this ex that I've spoken about a couple of times, she used to use cigarettes to make her go to sleep. Like, I think she's also an, another case of undiagnosed ADHD, and things kind of work opposite for us too. So cigarettes, cigarettes are a, uh, dopaminergic, so that's why they're so addictive. Yeah. They work because you do have nicotine receptors in your brain, and they do help release dopamine. Um. They are a relaxant. 
So they help you relax. It's kind of like marijuana. A lot of people think marijuana helps them sleep better, but it actually doesn't. It just helps you relax to get into sleep, yeah. but it won't actually help you get a deeper sleep. All right. Fair enough. Now, now cigarettes you can buy, as I said, behind the counter, and caffeine you can buy at Coles. Now, both of these things may seem very harmless from the get-go, which they probably are. Uh, from you know maybe not cigarettes but caffeine. It's not harmless to the government's wallet though, is it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what it basically uh, comes down to. Yeah. Um, but yet now my personal thing on psychedelics is I don't think they're legal because the government can't um, find a way to make money. They can't. Uh, what am I trying to What am I trying to say here? That they, they can't schedule it in a way where they can make money off it. Of, of which the cigarettes, you say? Psychedelics. Oh, psychedelics. Yeah. I'm say, I'm pretty sure they make money off the cigarettes. Yeah, plenty. Um, oh, yeah, with the psychedelics. Yeah, I guess so. Is that why marijuana's not legalised here too? Well, it kind of is now, isn't it? Um, marijuana, so... Medicinal marijuana. See, Apparently people are getting really into the medicinal marijuana now too. Um, CBD is... Uh, legal, uh, CBD is legal here. To purchase it here is pretty hard, um, but CBD is legal here. You can use CBD oil. I've had experiences with uh, CBD oil. Um, I went to Hawaii and I bought some CBD oil. I bought it back. I was purely trying it just for sleep um, because I've heard of uh, anecdotal stories about CBD being really good for sleep. Did it work for you? Uh, so it helped me relax and get into sleep. Now, it did not really help me long-term get a better sleep, okay? But what it did help me is, as you know, I've got a lower back injury. I've got an L5-S1 uh, thing going on. It greatly helped with pain because okay. basically you have CBD receptors in your body and it actually helps with peripheral pain. Okay, so the pain that I was getting with my lower back was basically gone. However, it's a double-edged sword because when I came off the CBD oil, I was on it for four months and then I just came off it because I wanted to... If, if you're going to see the effects, you need to come off it. So after coming off it, the pain was worse. How long were you on? Sorry to interrupt. Four months. Okay. The pain was actually worse than it was before after coming off. So the pain was pretty much twice as worse. You, was it was it actually twice as worse, or is it because you got used to not having no pain anymore, and then suddenly having it back, and you focusing on it being back? Do you think it maybe that could have been a mental thing? I'm not too sure the science on it. My guess was, as I said, you have CB receptors in your brain, uh, CBD receptors in your brain, and what my guess was is so you're brain naturally releases these CBD pain chemicals. Um, but I was putting in so much that these CBD receptors were just getting plummeted, right? And then when I come off, that little bit that it can release wasn't enough anymore. Um, I'm still off CBD and I, now I'm, I feel a lot better, but it was that first maybe two weeks where... The pain was just a lot worse. After that two weeks, it came good. I'm guessing my threshold came down. 
but that first two weeks was brutal absolutely brutal yeah um it, it could be like uh i'm not saying it's exactly like but it could be like a drug where when you first come off it you're getting that not it wouldn't have been withdrawal but something maybe similar where the first stage is a lot worse than the later stage yeah, yeah. Well, i'm kind of going through one of them sort of stages now because obviously like i said before i'm not going to say that i'm natural because i'm not uh, when I compete, obviously drug use goes up a lot higher. The performance enhancing drugs, let me state so people don't think that I'm jumping on the ice just to compete. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so PEDs go up somewhat higher. And then you finish your comp, obviously you've got to go through a rest phase. And I no longer come off completely anymore because I don't need to you know, protect my fertility or anything like that. I have my kids, I've got, got what I need. So um, I come down, I, can, I plan to keep competing and to stay in shape as well. I come down to a sports TRT dosage, which is really small. And it's so small that now my body feels like it's back to natural and my joints are hurting, my back, lower back's hurting. Like all the old pains that were being protected while I was on it, they, they're all back. So yeah, it, I guess it's somewhat of a band-aid as well, using anything. If you don't mind me asking, what do you take on let's just say you've got a competition coming up in the future, what would you take to prepare? Well, it would probably be an easier question if you say, what don't I take? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Look, I'll take, you know, your, your basic, like, <laughs> your, your, have you that thing by Ronnie Coleman? Nothing, just your basics, testosterone, D-ball, <laughs> tram. <laughs> Uh, but but seriously, it, it goes in it goes into uh, like periodization. Obviously, you're not going to go balls to the wall straight away at 20 weeks out of a comp. You're going to build your way up because as as calories come down, milligramage goes up. That way, as an enhanced athlete, you can you can really hold your weight a lot better because your food's coming down and you're losing you're burning fat, but you're retaining muscle while your milligramage goes up, so you can really hold that weight a lot better instead of being a natural a natural competitor where you're just going down in weight your whole prep there's no there's no holding weight anywhere really like it's really fucking hold, hard to hold weight as a natural competitor so basically you know you, you add extra things as you go so i would start with my sports trt dose at two, say, say 200 megs of testosterone and anthate a week then you know four weeks down the track i might put in masteron because if, if you i'm oh no, sorry i would up my testosterone then after up, upping the test, obviously your body's natural um, reaction to that is your estrogen is going to come up as well. And if your estrogen comes up too high, you're going to start getting gyno, which is like bitch tits. You're going to start, you know, getting getting the estrogen effects of like what a, like a, a female physique type thing. So you want to suppress that estrogen somewhat with master like a drug like masteron. So I'll implement that, and then I can bring test up a little bit more, testosterone up a little bit more. And then I'll keep going up in Masteron because I'm never going to get an overflow of estrogen with uh, Masteron going up, but I can still get my milligrams to go up. I'm giving away all my secrets here. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, later down the track, say eight weeks out, I might add in um, Trembolone, which is a big no-go for a lot of people. If you're in a relationship, I wouldn't recommend Trembolone. It's a relationship destroyer. You know, someone else might want to add MPP, which I can't add MPP because everyone reacts differently to things. And if I'm on MPP, I'll become like a little sooky little girl. I just, I think, why am I doing this shit? I don't want to do bodybuilding anymore. This is shit. What's the point? <laughs> I get all emotional. 
So I stick more to the trend side of things for comp. Um, you know, I'll, I'll probably put clenbuterol in there towards the start so I can burn fat earlier. Uh, again, I'm giving up on my secrets, aren't I? <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a lot of different compounds that come into play. And as you get closer to comp, you've got to watch out for water retention, like really close to comp. So that's when things really need to be manipulated and monitor, monitored closely. But all in all, I'd say like there's probably a total of one, two, three, four, probably six, six or six, yeah, around six different um, performance enhancing drugs that are used. How has using steroids interacted with your ADHD diagnosis? Look, I think it's helped, if anything. When, um, when, when my dosage is low, like now, for example, I would need to ta- I'll take my Vyvanse in the morning and then I might get to the state, get to the point where I need to take two Dexies and two Dexies again after that during the last end of the day. Whereas when I've got a higher, um, a higher amount of milligrams going in with performance enhancing drugs, I, I personally feel like it, it enhances everything, emotions, it enhances uh, your hormones, obviously, it enhances your recovery rate, it enhances everything, and I think it actually enhances your brain cognition as well. So I obviously need less taxis when I'm on a higher dosage. With steroids, they're becoming very, very popular now. Um, so when I first started weightlifting, uh, or training, I should say, some time ago, steroids weren't really the odd look they might have been. I just wasn't aware of it. But I feel like it's gone from creatine and protein powder for these uh, younger type of individuals who are starting out training to them instantly wanting to hit steroids. What? Now you're a steroid user. What is your opinion on younger individuals and people who are starting wanting wanting to hit steroids? Look, I, I, I run my business as well, and I have these people coming to me. I always tell them, because I'm not a big drug, I'm not big on pushing drugs. If people want to be natural, fucking good on you. I, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this and follows me on Instagram has seen my client, Joe. He's 100% natural, and he looks fucking amazing. He's dedicated, because everything comes down to nutrition, your training, genetics as well. And um, Talking about that. Um, yeah, so... <clears throat> It comes a lot down to nutrition, training, genetics, everything. The 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 performance enhancing side of things is, you know, it's a personal preference. I'll run everyone through the fact that look, this is probably there's a good chance you're gonna fuck your reproductive system. You're a young fella, you might not want to do that, or you're a young lady, you might not want to do that. Think about that first. If if that's okay with you and you still want to do it, then definitely get my uh, guidance on it because if you're going to listen to these dickheads around the gym saying you need to be on a gram of test and fucking add some train to that, like you're going to fuck yourself up. You're going to like these people, they're not even checking their blood work. They're not doing anything safe. They're just plunging this fucking oils into them. They don't even know where, where it's coming from. I guess none of us really know where it's coming from, but um, you know, if, if, if you've been into it for uh, like a decent amount of years, you obviously get better sources and better connections and all that sort of thing. Uh, but these young fellas doing it like there's there's way too much testosterone flying around the gyms these days. Like the the gym where I train, there's there's these young fellas that they're always in each other's face now. People are getting in fights over machines and shit like that, and it's all because they've they've fucking ramped up their testosterone so much. They don't know what they're doing. They're they're out of they're out of control. Like get some if you want to take that route, get some fucking professional help for fuck's sake. I um. I personally don't have an issue with people uh, wanting to take steroids. I have an issue with people who are, let's just say, younger than 
21 and that wanting to take it. Or I shouldn't even say 21. I'll, I'd probably say even mid-20s because, like, look, your testosterone at that age is still pretty high. Um, look, it, you're still you're still uh, developing into your adult body too. At that yeah. point in time, you probably I, I always recommend you know if you're 25 or under, probably shouldn't do it if you want to you know get to your full growth potential of what you would have naturally, and then enhance that, which I think is a better idea. It's not even that. It's I feel like most people at that age aren't educated on it. They're just jumping on it because they saw someone on a bodybuilding stage like Seabum and yeah. uh, they, they want to look like him. Or Yeah, then they'll, they'll Google whatever he was using and try whatever the first thing pops up is, oh, fuck, we got to do that too. That's how we look like that. It doesn't work that way. Like, you got to start small. If you're if you're a 70 kilo male and you've never done it before, you're going to be hypersensitive to it and you need the most minute little amount to get to get your results. Like, uh, yeah, it's... It, it, it goes in stages. Like you grow into this stuff. Like there's obviously the the meals that I started off with wouldn't do that much for me now because I've grown a lot since then. What is your opinion on individuals like the Liver King? So people who are on steroids but then give individuals false hope, saying I'm natural. You can, you know, you can. I've only just seen that that Liver King thing pop up on my Instagram this morning, and I didn't look anything into it, so I don't know about the Liver King. Basically, uh, the liver king was someone, or he is someone, who eats this ancestral diet. So he eats raw liver, raw heart, raw testicles. He eats uh, just all, and all meat. Okay, and now he says he got. Dish, now he's a big boy. He I'm not sure what he is in kilos. Um, I'm pretty sure in pounds he's like 250 pounds. He is he's a massive boy. Now. He all he went on podcasts and other interviews and said he is natural. He's never taken the stuff and he's against it. And then it was found out that he's spending, I think, it's ten thousand dollars a month on steroids. And then he tried to come back and apologize for it and say, "Oh, I didn't claim for it because I'm trying to help these individuals with mental health." And the the, the I, I, I don't approve of that at all. I think if someone's going to do something, just own it. What's the point in hiding it from somebody? I don't see the point. Like. Yeah, just if, if you're going to be on something, just own it. Like, it's nobody's business, really. If somebody asks, you can just say it's none of your business. You don't have to say, no, I didn't. I did not do that. It's different if it comes to children. Like, um, for example, my son, Deja, he's 11 now. He's pretty on the ball. And these kids, they've got way too much with YouTube these days. They know too much. And Deja's just a smart kid. He's like, Dad, do you use the, the um, needles? So I had to sit him down and have a chat with him about things, and I didn't lie to him or anything. I said, "Look, I do use enhancements, and it's not—it's not just for anyone. It's because I do this profession, not profession. I, I do it for a profession in regards to what I do for a living. I'm not at a professional level with bodybuilding, but um, I've explained to him that look, it does this, it does that. Uh, yeah, so I've given him a brief rundown on things, but now I went to his." Uh, He's a sprinter now, yeah? So I went, I went to his sprinting the other day, and that was the, when we, when Melbourne actually finally gave us some freaking sun. So I had my singlet on, and all these kids are going, Deja, is that your dad? Is that your dad? And then apparently they started asking him if he's up, is your dad on steroids? And, um, yeah. Do you have an audience? Oh, what's going on there? Uh, anyway, yeah, the, apparently he said, no, dad's, dad's not doing anything. And I said, good, that's the right answer. Like, these kids, little kids like this don't need to be thinking that something, because they, they thought I was awesome. 
I said, look, little kids like this, they don't need to be thinking steroids is the bee's knees and that it's something cool. Like, they don't need to know shit. Like, they just need to know that I train hard and I eat right. That's it. What is that conversation like with with your son? That that would have had to be a really hard conversation. No, look, me and my son, we're so close. We're like best mates. And he's he's only 11, but he's like a, I'm telling you, he's like a 25-year-old in an 11-year-old's body. Like he he pulls me up a lot of the time. If I'm if I'm about to lose my shit about something, he's like, Dad, just don't. <laughs> it's not right, Dad. So I've raised him well, I think, and he's taken in a lot. He's he's just a good soul. So conversations like that with my son, there are he's very mature. It's it's quite easy actually. Do you ever worry that he? So he will most likely step into the weight room room day. Uh, he's been training since he was three. Do you worry? about him going that steroid route no no he's very sensible i don't worry about that at all like he's into his sprinting like and he's seen me when i'm big when i was 112 kilos he's seen me in pain like it become you know starting at 56 getting to 112 that was painful for me because that's double that's double the body weight and my little joints and bones and stuff they, they weren't happy with that like yeah they develop as you grow as well somewhat but um I'm, I'm not worried that he's influenced by me in that because he sees me struggle to tie up my shoelaces when I'm big. He sees me struggle to do everything. He sees me puff and pant when I sit down, when I'm bulking. And he's he's already said to me, like people have said, oh, do you want to get as big as your dad? And he says, nah, maybe as big as my uncle. That's my little brother and he's a good size and he's 100% natural. He goes, maybe as big as him would be all right. But you know, when you get really big like dad, you can't move properly and it's just, it doesn't make life good. <laughs> What is your opinion on using TRT in older age? Because, as you know, and by older age, I mean 40s and up. As you get older, your test dramatically drops. But then well, that means the healing process of a broken bone, a torn muscle, even getting sick, and all these things go down. Joint health. If, let's just say, a very older individual was to come to you and say, look, I'd like to get on test, but I don't want to get it to where it's like a bodybuilder level. I just want to get my levels up to where they were for when I was, I don't know, 18, 19, just to feel good again, to help with my recovery. What would your response be towards an individual like that? Get your blood work done. Show me your blood work. Get on it. If blood work says, if blood work saying, you know, you're all right to get on it, your test is pretty low. It looks like time to, you know, up, up, up the ante a little bit. Then, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. There was a stage where I was overtraining um, and this overtraining was bringing me to a very fatigue stage. Now, at the time, I didn't know what overtraining was. So I went to a doctor and I said, look, I'm feeling very fatigued all the time. Um, I, I train good. I eat healthy, but I'm always just really fatigued. Can I get a, can I get a blood test done? Straight away, he, he, was like, he, was like, he said to me, oh, you, you're going to get on steroids. I'm not giving you a blood test. But I was generally just trying to get a blood test because I was fatigued. I figured out on my own it was overtraining. But even to get a general blood test to see things is hard. No, you... they're making it so hard now. So I've got this hack for getting a blood test. As long as, like, but, but, you know, some people freak out and they're like, but what about my parents? And I say, well, the doctor's not allowed to tell your parents, otherwise that doctor can lose his fucking job. So I say to people, go into the doctor, tell them you've fucking been on steroids, really high and you're worried about your hormones because you're feeling really shitty and depressed so you need to get a blood test done just to make sure everything's all right and then the doctor pretty much has to give it to you 
So you were in prison, obviously, for 13 months, and you say that flew by. Um, were there ever days that it actually did feel longer, though? Was there ever times where you were sort of in your cell and you were in your own head? Oh, look, there was the start of my sentence where I could barely move because I was so fucked from coming off everything that um, I was kind of stuck in myself for the first, you know, two months. But then people, it's hard when you're in prison, people start thinking things and want to talk because it's such a small community in there. People want to start shit all the time, you know. So my cellmate, who was the guy who was my cellie at the time, comes in and goes, oh, people are starting to get sus on you because you just stayed in the cell all the time. And I was just thinking, what the fuck does that even mean? And uh, I think I was still on the smokes at the time. Yeah, I was. I'd only come out for a smoke every now and again. So I thought, fuck, really, I'm going to play the, the game, this prison game and do like the, whatever I've got to do to not become suspect or fucking whatever. You can't just, you kind of can't just do your own thing in there. There's certain things you've got to live up to in there as well. Which is good, like it helps people become responsible as well, like clean your fucking cell, do this, do that, you know. Um, so yeah, I get out of my cell more. What was the question again? <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, I was basically asking, so when you were first going into prison, um, you were there for 13 months and you said time kind of flew by. But oh, were the, there... the longer days, yeah. So th- those first few months, the first few months, they were all longer days. Also, once you get to know people in there and you become kind of social, not a social butterfly because you kind of want to stick to stick to yourself somewhat but have a small group, <clears throat> there wasn't really any long days apart from um, after that thing that I told you about before with, you know, I had to jazz that guy up a bit, so to speak. The days after that were really long because every day you don't know if, are they going to storm in that morning and, and you know, get you that, that morning or... At any point in time, are they going to storm in and like rush you type thing to, to, to get back at you? So those were long days. That, that that dragged on for probably, I'd say, you know, six weeks or so. So that was a really long six weeks. Aside from that, there was only long days where some, I can't remember what happened, but the whole prison got locked down. So it was like we're all in the slot, basically. We couldn't leave ourselves. There was not even an um, hour of daylight that they had to give us. Like we're all just locked in ourselves every day for like i think it was about a week and a half maybe yeah so that was a long time but other than that not really were there was there any was there a time in were there situations that you saw in prison not involving you that kind of really stuck with you yeah yeah like there's these prisoners in there called prisoners of war pow's so there's this guy getting around the prison thinking he's King Dick because he's a POW in a um, medium security uh, prison. So he thought no one's going to fuck with him. He's a POW or whatever. And then one of the kind of sh- shorter term guys in there, like they were playing footy and he tried to kind of bully this guy. The POW tried to bully this guy. And uh, this guy's just turned around and give him an absolute flogging. <laughs> he's just wrecked him. Um, and yeah, this POW pretty much had his jaw smashed across his face. And, um, yeah, that, that kind of stuck with me thinking, you know, that, that these guys, they, they think they're all that. If you stick up for yourself, if you actually, you know, stick up for yourself and be a man, then the, the situation can be handled. So I'm, I'm not saying that everyone's going to be able to do that, but, yeah, if, also these bullies, fucking give them some back. Yeah, and um, maybe they won't be bullies anymore. So the prison environment would you say, is an environment where 
if you don't, if you do not stick up for yourself and if you just do try to stick to yourself and do your own thing and someone comes up to you and decides to pick on you because you're by yourself and you just try and walk away, would you say this person will now become a target because it's just so easy? Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no real... If someone's going to actually cross that line of trying to start some shit with you, you, you can't walk away. There's no walking away, really. It doesn't work that way. Where, where are you going to walk? <laughs> Prison is such a crazy environment to me because it's, it's almost like... It's almost like a. It's almost like the animal kingdom, almost like it, it, you. You really got to fight for your place, and if you're not ready for that, it you could chewed up and spit out. Yeah, yeah, you got to stand your ground in there. Like um, we, as you said before about the mental health stuff and the psych psych stuff, there is actually um, group group therapy type sessions that we do in there as well, and uh, one of the one of the blokes. He was saying, you know, we had to we had to say some positive things that we got out of prison. And one of the blokes stood up and said, prison taught me how to be a man. Because there's a lot of, obviously, these these guys that, that are in prison, including myself, we're not at that, uh, you know, that bigger maturity level. Uh, kind, of, kind of a lot of a lot of boys go in there. And yeah, you can come out a man. You can come out with a lot of life lessons. We are running out of time, um, but one more question I'd like to ask you. Let's just say someone, a younger guy, um, let's say teenagers, is acting up, sort of going against his parents, going against the grain, kind of looks like he might be heading towards a, a prisoner life. Um, if you could talk to a, a younger child or teenager, adolescent, whatever you want to call them like that, and give them some advice to steer them, on on a on a more righteous path because as you've described prison isn't really a place that you want to be yeah, a revolving door what would you what advice would you give that child or what would you tell them to keep him out of that prison life same thing i said before find something you're passionate about and follow that dream but what if that passion to them at that time is just selling drugs like that that's that's all that's all they can see i, I, I can say that fucking um they watch too it, much narcos I, I was watching too many movies and that was actually a passion of mine was selling drugs and i did it do i regret it no it shaped me into what i am today everyone has a story everyone you know you gotta uh, i i guess i shouldn't say that it's kind of influential to say oh, if you're gonna fuck up fuck up i don't mean that at all if um if there was any advice I could give, it would be just have a think to yourself about where it's going and what it's going to achieve you. And that I can tell you from experience that being doing the wrong thing can only lead you in one direction, and that's the wrong direction. Yeah. That's really... It, it, it's really hard when it comes to like trying to tell youth, because these youths that are going to do that anyway... They're kind of going to want to do their own thing and not going to want to listen to anyone. I just hope that my story and um, what I've been through could help them, which I think it can. And I do want to focus on getting into some youth groups and trying to trying to help help with them as well, because I think that they might look up to me and kind of look at me and think, "All right, well, fuck, he's you know, 
he's, he's saying that doing all this bad shit's not good, you know, focus on something better. Maybe we should focus on something better and figure out what we're passionate about and do that. And before we unplug, if anyone wants to find you for some training or coaching. I have my website, evolvebt.com. I have Instagram, evolve.bt. Um, you can always DM me on them or, or send me, shoot me an email to ebt at evolvebt.com. I would absolutely love to have you on again. I think we could talk for another hour, but as I say, we're running out of time. Dylan, I 100% thank you for coming on, and it was great talking to you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me here, Dale.